The Naval Institute Podcast is brought to you by Lockheed Martin. At Lockheed Martin, our mission is to keep you mission ready. And the F-35 Lightning II delivers. From the factory line to the front lines, we're there to see your mission through from start to finish, ensuring our men and women in uniform have a decisive advantage and come home safe every time. It's your mission that defines our purpose because lives depend on it. Lockheed Martin, your mission is ours. Welcome to the Naval Institute Podcast, live from West in San Diego, day two wrap-up. I'm here with the team, Paul Kingsbury, retired Fleet Master Chief, my co-director of outreach, and the editor of the latest version of the Chief's Guide, and Bill Hamlet, the editor-in-chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Ward. And we have a special guest player with us today, the editor-in-chief of Task and Purpose, my dear friend, Paul Zoldra. Hello, Paul. Hello. Nice to be here. So what did you guys think of day two that started off with the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, the Honorable Ellen Lord, who was coming in via, actually it was just basically a conference call, because um, uh, she's testimony has kept her on the East Coast. Uh, what did you think of that uh, presentation? Well, it was too bad that she couldn't be here in person or, or e- even via video teleconference, right? Because it, it, there was a bit... Until we got to the Q&A, it was hard for her to read the audience and vice versa, right? But once we got to the Q&A, I thought there were some terrific questions. Ellen Lord is, she's a true expert on the DOD 5000, the acquisition process, all the different you know strains of money, pots of money that go into acqu- acquiring the force, sustaining the force. And I think having uh, the opportunity for people in industry to ask her questions is, is always powerful. Paul so I didn't have the opportunity to go to that one. Okay. I was out talking to some uh, old shipmates I was catching up with doing uh, some business there. Um, but I did. I would ask this, since I didn't go there, if I was there, you know, for several years we've talked about you know gaining efficiencies in the acquisition process. Uh, have we made progress? You know, did she address that? Did she talk about that? Bill Hamlet, what would you say about what Paul just asked? Did she? I, did she address? Um, leaning out or the you know from frp to ioc at all i was really a nuts and bolts like it felt like we were in a course for contracting yeah the defense acquisition university right yeah yeah, like like we're going to be warranted at the end of the right and she mentioned she mentioned some aspects of the you know training the acquisitions force and 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 uh, slimming down the dod 5000 and the acquisition process some of that went over my head to be honest um she did it was almost like a procedural yeah i guess it was industry facing so that's appropriate absolutely appropriate but um you know she did provide some uh specific examples of places where they were able to speed up uh, some of the process uh, and perhaps are moving faster towards uh, acquiring the force, uh, getting from um, uh, a requirement to, uh, you know, awarding a contract to actually fielding a capability. And, and that was a, uh, a topic that was, uh, you know, sort of resonated today, right? After her, the, uh, the next um, uh, conversation this, after, or this morning was the uh, procurement upgrade adapt. Are we able to procure upgrade adapt to meet the demands of great power? Some people would call that the systems command panel. Uh, you had Admiral Moore at NAVC. You had Admiral um, Becker, uh, Naval Information Warfare Systems. You had Admiral Peters, Commander of Naval Air Systems. And, and they talked 
probably more specific examples of things that they're doing in their systems command to uh, you know to speed up the acquisition process. Uh, and a big part of that uh, that went with that conversation is it's not just speed to fleet. So speed to fleet can be a bad thing depending on what you're delivering to the fleet. It's speed of a relevant capability to the fleet that then you can you can train a force, you can man it to, uh, and you can um, you can sustain it logistically, right? Yeah, so that it's, and maintain it. And maintain it. Yeah. And so that's that. It, you you got to be able to build it quickly, more you know maybe more quickly to react to what the adversary is doing or stay ahead of what the adversary is doing. But you also can't just field some capability that then you can't sustain, you can't, you know, uh, provide the logistics uh, for. And, and that came out a little bit in uh, Ellen Lord's remarks, talking about the F-35 program, that they're now, you know, what they, they just let um, a contract for the next 480-something F-35s. Uh, but now they're also moving into the sustainment logistics aspect of this, you know, AIMD and depot level maintenance. And so we're flying the force while we're buying the force and uh, figuring out how to sustain this very high tech uh, capability while we figure out how, to, how we're going to use it in, in a, an operational you know, war fight. Uh, so, Paul Zolder, I know that you were at the AI conference or the AI panel. Um, what, what were your takeaways from that? really good panel about AI, artificial intelligence, and kind of the, the issues of, of, uh, of going forward with that. Dr. Tangridi uh, was talking about AI, and um, he basically, his big point was deception. Um, everybody in the, the DoD is talking about trying to solve this problem and make you know, technology better and make the systems smarter with AI, and nobody's really talking about the idea of the enemy getting in the middle of that and hacking AI or making it so it can be spoofed in some way. Um, he gave the example of, of like a stop sign. The camera on the Tesla sees the stop sign and knows that it's a stop sign. But what if somebody puts, you know, some sticker on that and it now it's not recognized as a stop sign? How do you do that? And I think that was really interesting. Um, something I hadn't really heard talked about with AI. Well, and he gave a call to action for the Navy to create a, a core of hackers I think what he was talking about, and he he made sure to not say that this was not his. Right, he's this like, is this is Sam Tan not right. DoD. Um, but he was saying we need more uh, white hat hackers to make make sort of a militia. He called it. I think the I think the problem with um, any kind of cyber cyber people getting them in uniform, you know, that's a, a little bit of a challenge for your young person, you know, into computers, doesn't really want to join the military, but maybe wants to solve problems. Um, you know, how do you help them do that? Well, they can still, you know, keep their earrings and red hair um, <laughs> and they don't have to wear the uniform. They still want to serve the country. I thought I thought that was kind of an interesting take. Yeah. Um, so then let's fast forward to lunch and the enlisted superior performers that we had today. Yes. Um, so who do we have today? We had some different commands uh, coming up today. Yeah, so another 60 or so across the three sea services. So Coast Guard Sector San Diego represented Marine Corps. We had a spread of commands on the Marine Corps side. So All the way from Yuma. Is that the first yes. year we've had Marine Corps stationed? No, in Yuma I think they here? were there last year. So were they? Yeah, really. The, that's pretty good haul. The command guest list remained pretty consistent. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, Wounded Warrior Battalion had a couple. Um, electronics Special Communication guys. School, right? And then on the Navy side, we had NSW represented. Uh, we had uh, Navy Systems Information Warfare Command, right, what used to be Spay War, represented. Uh, Navy Medicine West was represented. Uh, and I think in Third Fleet. 
So a uh, great opportunity once again to recognize and sit and have a conversation with them doing great things. Like I said in the, com- you know, in the opening remarks, right? I, there's an opportunity to highlight this modern enlisted, intelligent, intellectual, capable enlisted force and the, the accomplishments they're doing. So great time. And then our lunch keynote was uh, Admiral Davidson, uh, the uh, co-com for Indo-PACOM, a guy who we all know in a variety of ways. You served with him for him at uh, Fleet Forces Command. I know him as an academy classmate, and he was uh, the Desron chief of staff when I was CAG Ops back on GW in the late 90s. Um, but he was a busy guy, right? He just he didn't even do lunch. He walked in, gave his remarks, and, uh, and, and, and walked out. He's on his way to Canada. Um, I had a chance to catch up with him a little bit, but he's very busy. So, Bill, what were your impressions of his uh, his keynote? Well, I, I was trying to put it in my own mind in uh, so, sort of setting the context. You know, two years ago, uh, this the idea of great power competition and, and China as a rival was, you know, part of the conversation here at West. And there was a real, I, I think... Um, a concern because you're coming out off of the uh, Seventh Fleet accidents in 2017. It's early 2018. There's a recognition that the Chinese are rapidly building capability and building force structure, and they're exerting their force uh, out into the South China Sea and the East China Sea, out to the the first island chain and even beyond that, right? And then last year the conversation was, okay, how are we going to catch up? How do we how do we build a force that that um, uh, you know, is capable of deterring great power competition, deterring the Chinese adversary, et cetera. And then this year, it, it's very much the, the conversation as well. But I, I, I sense from all the uh, panelists uh, a, a much better sense of um, maybe assuredness that we actually, you know, the, the U.S. military, the, the joint force is ready for this, it is on step and is staying ahead of the adversary. And that came through in Davidson's remarks. He was not apologetic. He was not um, at all sounding like he was concerned with what was going on. Concerned, yes, but not worried and not not feeling like he was behind the, the eight ball. But I think he came across as, as incredibly confident that, hey, the United States... Uh, we are the partner that, uh, of demand, right? So as he travels around Indo-PACOM uh, and, and talks to political leaders, military leaders in all the countries in, the, in his theater of operations, he hears a demand for partnership and for exercises and for doing things uh, the way the United States does to, to support freedom of navigation and the, the current world order, right? Um, you know, it, it, there was a question, uh, Sam uh, Legrone from USNI News asked a question about what's going on with the Philippines, and you know the Philippines has recently sort of taken a turn away from perhaps uh, the the alliance that we've had with the Philippines now for 75 years. Uh, and, and Admiral Davidson sort of answered that is you know hey this relationship with the Philippines kind of ebbs and flows, and we're we're at a you know perhaps a lower point right now, but. Uh, you know, there's 100,000 Americans that live in the Philippines. There's a lot of Filipinos that live in the United States. This is a long-term partnership that's that's not going anywhere, right? Well, he also said the military, never mind what's happening politically, the, the military relationship is, he said, I think, stronger than ever, right? So that was an interesting way to sort of segment the, the, the Philippine threat or the Philippine situation. Um, yeah. But like you said, I think what, what, what I, this one word I would give to the remarks is confident. Yes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's from my experience, right? So back in 2015, when I was selected as fleet mass chief, you know, interviewed with him, um, he's got a great ability to create a narrative and put everything in context, right? So 
it so resonated with me when he was a you know the fleet commander of fleet forces this this narrative of the shift to the high end fight and how he could talk about hey my predecessors had to make decisions based on the context of where they're at but he he is one of those thought leaders who looks ahead sees where the battle space is and is able to start to pivot the organization that way so um it was interesting to me to hear that same discussion put on steroids and in a joint context. So I, that's I, what I talk. And, and to your point, confident, yes. I, as a taxpayer now and a you know former, I want a commander in PACOM that is confident, protects strength, and knows what we're doing. And that was my takeaway. I, I also thought it was really interesting that he started his speech off with a, a lesson learned from the Cold War from the Army and the Air Force, right? Yep. With um, the post-Vietnam. Uh, post-Vietnam. And, mid-70s. And try, Mid-70s, trying to figure out what they're going to do to deter uh, and stop a potential Soviet invasion of uh, our, our allies in uh, Western Europe. And he talked about the evolution towards uh, what became airland battle between the Army and the Air Force. And then he, he pivoted off of that towards what the Joint Force is now doing in Indo-PACOM to develop capabilities, to test those capabilities, to exercise capabilities that are very much intertwined with the ability to deter uh, the fight, to deter the Chinese from from doing something, uh, and then uh, and 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 then to fight back as airland battle, you know, provided those capabilities in uh, in the Cold War against the Soviet threat in in Europe. Um, but but then, I thought. Probably the, the most interesting conversation this afternoon was the one that happened in the engagement theater at, uh, at 1400, which was centered around the general prize essay contest winner uh, from the Naval Institute from proceedings last year. So Hunter Styers, kind of a wonder kid, right, who won the general prize essay contest last year with his uh, article called um, The South China Sea Needs a Coin Toss, coin meaning counterinsurgency. And, and uh, Hunter is laid out in his article, and then he helped assemble a panel of experts from the Joint Staff, from PAC Fleet, uh, Brian Clark from the Hudson Institute, uh, Steve Wills from uh, Center for Naval Analyses, and they looked at that, uh, what China is doing under the, the threshold of open war uh, in an insurgency operation against uh, their neighbors in the South China Sea, and how do you push back against that? It was a fascinating conversation uh, wicked problem set, one that requires being able to work with allies and partners, partners, build capabilities, but also pull on all the different uh, levers of national power. Uh, that, I, I found that to be a really interesting conversation. And if you're listening to this and you can go to the uh, YouTube channel that we have set up, all of those conversations here at West are on our YouTube channel. Uh, look for that one. The South China Sea needs a coin toss because it will inform your thinking about sort of managing that great power competition below the level of a high-end fight. Paul Zolder, is this your second West? Yeah. Okay. So, in in general terms, what what do you what do you think about the event, and what what's its value to you? It's really good for me, just as a reporter. I'm walking around and I'm I'm talking with people and, and meeting new people and, and kind of you know doing that thing. So that's always good. Seeing the service chiefs the first day was really great. I didn't see a whole lot of news to come out of it, but it was still really good to hear from them and actually you know have them. Have, make some public remarks and, and talk about some things. The the question on everybody's mind, I thought, you know, ahead of the conference, there was the email talking about the coronavirus and it's going to go ahead of schedule. And that was the first question to pose to the service chiefs of, hey, is this is this affecting anything, training and readiness? Well, they actually asked Ellen Lord 
if coronavirus is affecting the F-35 production because of the international nature oh, yeah, of that, remember? And she said, no, not don't think so. Not yet. Right. But it's like everything's coronavirus now. It's like right. just find some way into the, <laughs> yeah. the, the conversation with coronavirus. Yeah. Um, and, and she just said no. That, that's, that is a big problem. I mean, like companies, Apple, Apple supply chain is all in China. And so now they have to think about that. And so the F-35, any kind of military program, I'm, I'm sure... Even with um, you know troops overseas right now doing exercises, uh, the Cobra Gold exercise is still going forward. That's something that General Berger, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, said, um, and that you know that's a huge exercise in Thailand and it involves Japanese forces, U.S. forces. Um, you know, 29 countries I believe are coming in for that, and they're doing you know coronavirus screening and all that kind of thing. But you know, gonna, there's definitely isn't a risk. that the one where because we used to use that picture at um, with the the snake and the blood, isn't that the exercise? It is, yeah, right. Yeah, that is. So that they're is probably the not going to do that. That's the one where they, yeah, they have. They usually have the photos of. Yeah, them that's not like the Thai ritual, right? Yeah, blood and, yeah, yeah. The Thai so special forces. Probably, they probably won't do that this time. I'm thinking. It, right? Isn't that the? Isn't that how coronavirus <laughs> was created by eating cobras? I I don't know. We or, should probably or, or tell think the CDC is. about that. Or yeah. bats, bats, right. cobras yep. and bats. Yeah. We're changing the nature of the podcast to health and wellness. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just brought up the Sea Service Chiefs, and that was yesterday. But I wanted to, for our, our Coast Guard listeners particularly, I found really interesting uh, the question that, that uh, Bob Work uh, asked to each of the, the, the members. He said, you know, if you go back to like 2015, uh, the, the height of the... Uh, the, the Budget Control Act and sequestration, uh, the impacts of that on the services. And if he said, you know, if you bottom lined where your service was at that time as a zero, uh, where do you feel your service is now on a scale of one to ten? Right. And I think that the comment of the Marine Corps said, you know, a six or seven. The CNO said uh, a six or seven, maybe five or six. Right. And, and Commandant Schultz of the Coast Guard said a three. And I thought that was really interesting because the Coast Guard was, as we know, was uh, terribly impacted last year uh, by the uh, um, the government shutdown. Right, the government shutdown that impacted a whole lot of things that they're trying to do. Budget growth that DOD had seen in 2016, 17, 18, etc., uh, did not happen for the Coast Guard. Uh, and the Coast Guard right now, he pointed out, is in uh, a, a huge build process. So they're building national security cutters. They're building offshore patrol cutters. They're, they're buying and, and recapitalizing their air fleet and their surface fleet to a level that uh, hasn't been seen in like 30 or 40 years. And, and so for anyone out there in the Coast Guard and you think about the, the challenges and their 11 different statutory missions for the, the count on the Coast Guard to say, hey, we're kind of at a three that's not great, right? That, that shows that uh, cons- some consistent funding for the Coast Guard's got to come and got to come fast. Uh, who knows if it's going to come, but it, I thought that was, you know, a, a truth to power kind of moment where the service chief could have said, hey, everything's great, uh, but he didn't. Right? He chose to say, no, things are pretty challenging for no, us. No, that, that, that is true. But it, it was sort of interesting that when they're talking in terms of five or six, they're all saying, but we're ready for anything, right? We're, we're right. ready. It, it wasn't like we're... You know, we're an extremist, and if, you know, the bubble goes up, we can't do it. I think they always have to work both, both sides of the equation there. Sure. Um, not to scare the nation or piss off, you know, the secretariat in being honest or speaking truth to power. But you're right. They were 
not overly sanguine about where, where they are with respect to uh, where they need to be. That's actually something I heard last year. You know, the Coast Guard's sort of talking a lot about the icebreaker situation and, and you know, how, how we have these 40-year-old icebreakers, 40, 50 years old, and you have China and Russia using the Arctic and transiting it and all that economic activity up there. And meanwhile, the United States is very far behind. And it just, they keep harping on this message and they keep saying it over and over again. It doesn't seem like anybody's listening. Well, they they did get money in the 2019 budget, uh, which came late, we know, for the Coast Guard uh, for the first, uh, essentially, uh, procurement of the first uh, Coast Guard uh, polar security cutter. Right. So the the detailed plans and the start of construction has been paid for. And he said that he uh, the Commandant Schultz said he thought that that uh, first polar secure security cutter would be uh, in the hands of delivered to the Coast Guard by 2023 or 2024, uh, with at least three more to come. And he was calling for uh, a, a Coast Guard icebreaker fleet of, uh, of six that would include at least three of those polar security cutters. All right. Well, we got to go to the member event that's coming up pretty soon here. Um, and you're headed back tomorrow. You're going to take the podcast rig with you. And we have uh, who we have on Thursday. Who are you going to be talking to out there with you and Richard talking to? Uh, it'll be a naval history episode. The naval history episode podcast. with uh, the director of the movie Greyhounds, which is coming out uh, in a, another month or so. That's starring, Tom Hanks. Starring Tom Hanks yeah. about a World War II uh, destroyer that was uh, involved in the uh, convoy operations across the Atlantic. And, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to uh, having a conversation with him. Okay. And then next week, I think we got Mick Paul and Russ Smith coming on, too. That's so. right, on uh, 13 March. Yeah, for the podcast. So. Oh, that's okay. It's good. been a while since we've had him. He's been on a couple of times before, yes. so it's great. should be a good conversation there. He's a good friend Lots of Lots of topics. Yeah, absolutely. Especially during testimony season. Well, another great West. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you back in Annapolis. The Naval Institute podcast is brought to you by Lockheed Martin. At Lockheed Martin, our mission is to keep you mission ready. And the F-35 Lightning II delivers. From the factory line to the front lines, we're there to see your mission through from start to finish, ensuring our men and women in uniform have a decisive advantage and come home safe every time. It's your mission that defines our purpose because lives depend on it. Lockheed Martin, your mission is ours. Oh,